Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Studies podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me today is Professor Ahmet Bayan of Clemson University. Professor Bayan's new book, which we'll discuss today, is Kemalist Turkey and the Middle East, International Relations in the Interwar Period. It was published in 2017, but is now out in paperback as well. In the book, Professor Bayan looks at the relations between the newly formed Republic of Turkey and the states which surrounded it many of which had been part of the larger Ottoman Empire from which Turkey was formed. Professor Bayan's book challenges the common conception that Turkey during these years turned inward, focused on developing a national culture and national economy, and sought to distance itself from its neighbors. To the contrary, he shows that the Republic of Turkey was engaged in diplomatic, economic, and cultural relations with its neighbors. His first book, Ottoman Ulema, Turkish Republic, Agents of Change and Guardians of Tradition, was published in 2011. In that book, Professor Bayan looked at how the religious establishment from the Ottoman Empire carried over into the Turkish Republic and was involved in creating the new state. Much like this current book, that book bridges the gap between the Ottoman and Republican Turkish periods. So, in introducing Professor Bayan, I'd like to ask him a little bit about himself and how he has this knack for finding these topics that help us think about the continuities as well as the changes during this time period. So, welcome, Professor Bayan. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a historian at Clemson University with a particular interest in the history of Turkey, focusing more or less on the period from the Young Turk Revolution of 1908 to the early 1950s, uh, I became interested in this uh, topic, in the topic of this book, while I was wrapping up the work on my previous book, which, as you said, focused on the Ottoman religious scholars, the ulema, and their engagement in politics during the closing years of the Ottoman Empire and the early years of the Republic. And while, uh, while working on that book, I noticed that uh, when I followed the uh, exploits of Ottoman ulema who found refuge in the Middle East, I noticed that the uh, diplomatic footprint of Turkey was quite significant in the Middle East of the interwar period, which surprised me uh, based on what I expected from the secondary literature that suggested otherwise, suggested disengagement, disinterest of Turkey in the Middle East. So that was 
one thing that intrigued me about this topic of Turkey's relations with the Middle East. And this also was around, I guess, 2011, when uh, when uh, Turkey was increasingly uh, engaged with the Middle East, increasing its involvement in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, so many of the uh, commentaries on this uh, seem to juxtapose the current the new activism of Turkey with the supposed disengagement from the region during the interwar period. So what do you think uh, accounts for this common understanding of there being disengagement? So I, I think that the, um, that the scholarship that, uh, that served as the foundation to the historiography of modern Turkey and the modern Middle East really was created from the 1960s and, 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 uh, mm. and, and from then on. And that the situation at the time, the conditions at the time, influenced the way uh, people looked back at developments uh, in the earlier decades. So they projected back things that actually took place during the Cold War uh, from the late 50s through the 60s and 70s and projected them back into the interwar period. And by the end of the Cold War, this was all but an orthodoxy, so all but an axiom that that people did not question. And to be honest, I did not question until I accidentally came across uh, some some evidence evidence to that, that, that appeared to suggest that this was not the case. And once I began looking deeper into the issue, I became convinced that this was not the case. That disengagement happened later and was projected back. Hmm. Let's see. Well, so in that case, let's let's move into some of the, the meat of the book. Uh, let, I'd like to talk first about how the division, at least the formal division between Turkey and some of these states came into being. So I, in your book, you talk about the way the borders were constructed, the border between Turkey and Syria, the border between Turkey and Iraq. And that might be a good place to start. So if you could talk a little bit about perhaps first Syria, how was the border between Turkey and Syria created? And uh, how, what were some of the ongoing issues even during this time period that the two states were dealing with as they were forming? So the border with, with Syria was uh, first, uh, the basics of it was... Uh, was created in an agreement between the French authorities and the national, nationalist government in Ankara during the struggle over uh, Anatolia. Uh, originally, the border was supposed to be set, at least the way the, uh, the victorious Western allies uh, saw it. It was supposed to be set by the Treaty of Sevres. Um, but the realities on the ground were, were that the uh, forces of the nationalist government in Ankara were prevailing. So the French that had uh, many problems in Syria anyhow and uh, faced uh, several defeats at the hands of the nationalist forces, the Turkish nationalist forces, 
decided to settle for some kind of a compromise that uh, allowed for borders that uh, gave Turkey uh, some territories that were, by the Treaty of Sevres, uh, supposed to be a part of Syria. On the other hand, from the nationalist perspective, uh, they were initially informed by the national pact that was uh, adopted in 1920 uh, and uh, which included parts of what later became northern Syria. So uh, from the nationalist uh, forces' perspective, from Ankara's perspective, they were still engaged in war against uh, the Greeks in Western Anatolia, and they had some difficulties with the British. So this was for them also a compromise to get more than the Treaty of Sevres in terms of the borders with Syria, but less than uh, what they uh, demanded, what they pledged uh, to demand in the National Pact of 1920. So that, that kind of the basics of the borders were set in 1921. And then in 1924, when the Treaty of Lausanne was uh, agreed upon, basically they followed what was earlier, uh, three years earlier, was agreed between the, mm. uh, the Ankara government and the French uh, authorities. Now, uh, the reality was that uh, this was a compromise that did not really satisfy uh, did not really satisfy uh, the, some of uh, the uh, expectations of the Ankara government and um, left some issues, serious issues, that divided the two sides. So uh, in territorial, um, if we look from a territorial perspective, uh, the Ankara government uh, maintained maintained. Uh, an expectation to eventually uh, acquire control of the Alexandretta re- region that from 1935 they renamed Hatay. So this was in ter- territorial terms and there was also concern that uh, Turkey, concerning Syria, that Turkey might be uh, also expecting to eventually get control of other parts of northern Syria, the Jazeera region, uh, perhaps Aleppo. So this this was uh, an issue that was uh, left of, uh, I mean, there was an agreement, but many people suspected that this was not the final word. Uh, and now, in addition to this, the populations themselves uh, were divided, the, the, the populations in the region themselves were divided by this new border Kurdish populations on both sides uh, of the border uh, and also Armenian and other minority populations south of the border in Syria that Turkey was concerned uh, were still harboring aspirations uh, for uh, their pre-World War I homelands in, in eastern Anatolia in Turkey. So this, these were issues that were left unresolved and created a lot of tensions during the interwar period. And was some, what was the situation with Iraq? Was it similar to this or were there important differences, different populations that were involved in these situations? How does that compare? 
So with, with Iraq, it's interesting. So with, with Iraq, the border was set uh, a little later than 1924. It was, uh, it was finally resolved really after uh, our international arbitration and a direct agreement between Britain and Turkey in 1926 only. And this was very painful from a Turkish, uh, a painful concession from a Turkish perspective because the Republican leadership uh, in Ankara pledged time and again not to give up on Mosul and other parts of, uh, of northern Iraq, but eventually they did. Um, uh, the, there too, uh, popula the population was divided similarly, and there, there were populations, mainly Assyrians, now in northern Iraq, still maintaining claims to territories in uh, Turkey. What was a bit different is that the terrain was different. In northern Iraq, mm. the terrain was much more mountainous, and there was uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, area that was kind of no man's land. In in Syria, uh, the 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 um, the divide was actually sometimes uh, within fields with people, you know, uh, their uh, their property on one side of the borders, their houses on the other side of the borders. These these uh, type of things. Uh, initially, the uh, the border with Iraq appeared, as I said, it was it was uh, put in place later in 1926. And it appeared uh, less stable, uh, mm. and uh, the kind of suspicions you, you in, point in to Iraq a... towards Turkey's intentions towards northern Iraq remain constant. But the reality was that the border never changed. With Syria, mm. the border did change, as we know, with the eventual uh, annexation of Hatay of the Alexandretta region. To Syria, so or rather to Turkey. So, what uh, the the Iraqi border appeared initially more problematic. Eventually, uh, it turned out, even though it was not stable, uh, it turned out actually to be more stable than, than the one with Syria. Hmm. So, one of the things you talk about in in both Syria and Iraq, you talk about a number of these crises moments. So, in the case of Syria, the Hatay crisis is one that really change the dynamic between Turkey and Syria. In the case of Iraq, one, one event one, one you point to that I found very interesting was the 1932 Assyria, Assyrian crisis in Iraq, but I hadn't really thought about the Turkish dimensions of that. So I was wondering if maybe we could talk, you could talk about that a little bit more, because this is an early crisis in the history of the, the Iraqi uh, monarchy, but I, I don't think until I'd read your book, I'd seen much discussion of how Turkey viewed this or was involved in it. Perhaps we could talk about that for a moment as well. Sure. So the Assyrians saw their homelands were really in, in the region of Hakkari that uh, was after uh, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and with the new borders between Turkey and Iraq were part of Turkey now. Now, during World War I, uh, the Assyrians were uh, displaced from this region. They uh, sided 
with enemies of the Ottoman Empire. They were attacked and they needed to flee to, uh, to Iranian territory and then eventually to Iraq. So they were uh, located in northern Iraq, but still harbored aspirations to return to their homelands around Hakkari only. Uh, they didn't want, want to return to Turkish rule. So there were all kinds of negotiations between the British and uh, during the period until 1932, when the British were the mandatory power in Iraq, there were uh, negotiations between the British and the Turks with the British trying to get the Turkish government to agree to ceding the territory of Hakkari so that the Assyrians that were located in northern Iraq and uh, leading there to all kinds of tensions could return to this, uh, to this region and the Assyrians hoped to establish their either a state or an autonomous region. Now, Turkey did not uh, fully reject these, uh, these British uh, efforts However, the price they asked for in return for this, for ceding this territory uh, was uh, for the British to get the French to agree uh, to cede part of the Jazeera region in Syria to Turkey, the region that is known as the Ducks Bill in, in the really uh, north uh, eastern corner of Syria, because uh, this was in a region that allowed direct connection through a much more hospitable terrain between Turkey and Iraq rather than the, rather than the inhospitable terrain uh, of, of northern Iraq and, and uh, eastern Turkey. The French did not agree, so it never worked out. So the reality was that the Turks were really concerned with the existence of semi-autonomous armed Syrian faction in northern Iraq uh, because of these claims to Hakkari, to this region. Uh, so they were pretty uh, content with the fact that the Iraqi government uh, uh, put down, through a massacre really, uh, the semi-independent military uh, power of the Assyrians in northern Iraq. In addition to the crisis over uh, Assyria, uh, Assyrians in Iraq, one more uh, crisis moment perhaps we could talk about and unravel a bit is the um, Ararat uprising, because that happened around the same time, I suppose about a year earlier, but it brings in Syria and Iran also, so these other states uh, sur surrounding uh, Turkey. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how the Ararat uprising uh, also illustrates some of these themes you're talking about, about Turkey's continued interactions with the countries surrounding it. Yes, this is a very interesting point that you bring, uh, pointing out that really these relations between uh, Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Iran are all... Uh, connected, sometimes entangled. I kind of stopped in the middle. Uh, if, if I wanted to continue a little bit more, the Syrians, after this massacre in 1932, many of them crossed into Syria, and then uh, it created more issues between Syria and, and Turkey. But that's kind of, uh, kind of 
to, to, to indicate how things uh, uh, are connected there cross borders. So the Ararat rebellion uh, indeed brought uh, Turkey into difficulties with Iran. And we didn't talk about the border with Iran. Uh, the border with Iran is supposedly uh, or was supposedly less complicated with the borders with Iraq and Syria because uh, a certain kind of international frontier existed between Iran and Turkey for many centuries. And in 1913, uh, an international agreement was signed to uh, delineate exact border between the Ottoman Empire and Iran and uh, Republican Turkey and uh, Riza Shah's Iran supposedly um, inherited these borders. So this was, uh, you know, on paper, the least complicated because it was inherited. The reality was that in the period between 1913 and 1924, between the pre-World War I agreement and the Lausanne Agreement in 1924, both uh, Iran and uh, the Ottoman Empire did all kinds of uh, actions and laid all kinds of demands that really questioned the uh, validity of this border. So eventually they they accepted it, but both sides were uh, very suspicious of the others, of the other side, the Turks suspicious that Iran was uh, trying to help Kurdish insurgents in eastern Anatolia in order perhaps to lay claim to this territory after destabilizing Turkey. And the Iranians concerned that Turkey might be harboring designs on Iranian Azerbaijan, where uh, Azeris uh, were considered Turks. Uh, So um, from from kind of a uh, a pan-Turkish standpoint that Turkey might be uh, interested in this uh, territory. So when a major rebellion took place in eastern Anatolia uh, in 1930, the Ararat revolt, uh, Turkey was concerned that Iran is not doing all it could to prevent provisions and reinforcement from crossing the border from Iran into Turkey to attack Turkish forces and then retreating uh, to safe havens in Iran uh, that the uh, Turkish military cannot uh, cannot hit, cannot pursue them. So several times in the late 1920s and and once the rebellion took place uh, in 1930, uh, Turkey uh, pressured Iran to do more to block Kurdish activity across the border from Iran into Turkey. And when Turkey felt that not enough was done, it simply sent its military across the border into Iranian territory to force the issue and basically occupied Iranian territory. And once they did that, uh, pressured Iran to agree to border modifications, to uh, basically cede little Mount Ararat to Turkey, and in return receive uh, uh, different territories from Turkey a little bit more to the south. Uh, Iran eventually reluctantly agreed to this. 
So this uh, border was actually modified first in 1931, and then basically by a dictate of the Turkish government. As I said, they, their army anyhow occupied this territory. Uh, and again, a smaller modification uh, in agreement between the two sides in 1937. Uh, now, how it's connected to Syria, many of the activists who supported this, uh, this rebellion in Turkey, in, in, in eastern Anatolia, were actually located in northern Syria, uh, Kurdish activists, uh, to some degree in cooperation with Armenian activists in northern Syria. So these things were, were connected. So we've been talking about these, these crises in Syria and Iraq, and I want to eventually get to some of the things that Turkey did to try to improve relations, such as railroads and trade. But first, I want to focus on one more uh, crisis that kind of illuminates some of these international relations during the period. And I want to move over to Egypt, where in the book you talk about um, Turkish-Egyptian relations, and you talk about uh, this thing called uh, the Tarbush affair with uh, between Turkey and Egypt. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe use that as a springboard to a little bit of a discussion about Turkey-Egyptian uh, relations before we come to some of these less crises moments and some of the more um, integrative moments. But first, I'd really be curious about that. Okay, so uh, the Torbush affair or the Fez incident, the, it's, it's basically similar headgear. The Torbush is the way it was called in Egypt, Fez in, in Turkey, uh, took place in late 1932. Uh, there was, on the occasion of Turkey's Republic Day, there was uh, a reception attended by Ataturk, or at the time still called Mustafa Kemal, uh, in, in which uh, all the diplomatic uh, representatives of the various uh, states with which uh, Turkey had diplomatic relations attended, including the Egyptian ambassador. Now, in Turkey, the Fez was banned since 1925, and it was a very serious offense to wear a Fez in Turkey. However, in Egypt, this was not the case. And the Egyptian ambassador came to this uh, diplomatic reception wearing his tarbush. So at a certain point, probably toward the end of uh, the reception, something happened. There are all kinds of reports on it. But uh, what is clear is that uh, Mustafa Kemal offended the Egyptian ambassador by basically uh, telling him to take, uh, to take off the uh, tarbush and sending it off, and perhaps adding some choice words about the Egyptian king, it's, it's not clear. There, as I said, there are all kinds of uh, uh, reports on it. But anyhow, uh, this was very unpleasant for the Egyptian uh, ambassador. He reported uh, the situation back home, what happened. Uh, but the Turkish foreign office immediately uh, sprang into action, trying to prevent this issue from becoming a public affair and, and creating difficulties between the two countries. They were able to do it for a couple of weeks, but uh, eventually it was, uh, it was published in Britain. And one, once it was this, the, the affair was published in Britain, it was picked up by the Egyptian press, 
and was used by the Egyptian opposition to basically uh, criticize the government for not defending the Egyptian honor, uh, describing the, the Torbush as the Egyptian national gear, and it was attacked, so it needs to be defended. And this kind of exploded into uh, a major uh, diplomatic um, crisis between the two countries with Egypt uh, uh, requesting all kinds of reassurance that the, that the Torbush would not be offended and that Egyptian representatives would not be required to take it off and Turkey responding with unwillingness to uh, uh, to apologize and, and um, being offended that uh, in the Egyptian press there were some criticisms of Mustafa Kemal. So this was kind of, uh, for several weeks, uh, a big issue between the two states, but eventually the two sides uh, were able to paper over it without Turkey apologizing, but with, with, with some kind of assurances that uh, it, it won't happen again, basically. Now, uh, in uh, some books that were written uh, in the 60s uh, and, and later on, this was taken as uh, symbolic of the disagreements, the, the, the uh, poisonous relations between uh, Egypt and Turkey during the interwar period. And I suggest that this is not the case. It definitely did. Mm represent tensions between the two sides uh, in the early 1930s. Tensions that really did not have much to do with the headgear, but had to do more uh, with issues of citizenship, with uh, Egyptians, or Egypt-based, I should say, uh, ethnic Turks, uh, sometimes trying to acquire Turkish citizenship and get some uh, perks through it, with Turkey uh, demanding that its citizens in Egypt enjoy the enjoy the benefits of capitulations, even though in its own territory, uh, one of the things that the re republic always celebrate celebrated was the uh, abolition of the capitulations, and there were all kinds of other financial issues between the two sides. Uh, and add to this tensions between King Fuad uh, of Egypt and the Turkish government. So all these issues really informed, uh, th these were really the issues of tensions, as, as I explained in the book, and, and, not, uh, and, and not the Torbush. This, this was not really about a headgear. At the same time, by the second half of the 30s, we see... Uh, uh, significant efforts, uh, primarily from Turkey, but eventually reciprocated from Egypt for a rapprochement between the two sides. This took place uh, mm. uh, after 1936. In 1936, there are several uh, important developments. Uh, one, King, King Fuad is, uh, dies and is succeeded by his son Farouk, but more importantly, Egypt gains formal independence from from Britain, and uh, Italy emerges as a perceived common threat in Cairo and Ankara. Mm -hmm. So 
the governments in these two places, in Egypt and Turkey, are kind of seeing it as in their interest, perhaps, to uh, establish better relations. And this leads to gradual improvements in the relations between Egypt and Turkey in the second half of the 30s, despite some lingering tension. And this, uh, the, the high point of this actually takes place uh, a few weeks before the outbreak of the Second World War, when the Egyptian foreign minister visits uh, Ankara. And symbolically, the Egyptian foreign minister in 1939 is the same person, Abdel Fattah Yahya, who was the Egyptian foreign minister during the Tarbush affair in 1932. And it's very interesting to see photos of him proudly wearing his Tarbush in Ankara, uh, meeting uh, the president of Turkey and the prime minister and other important uh, ministers in late 1939. So it it kind of puts the Tarbush affair into perspective. At the end of the day, uh, the two countries got over it and were able uh, to begin a rapprochement that, that World War II, the, the outbreak of the Second World War, basically uh, ended because uh, Egypt really lost wow. its, its autonomous uh, its ability to to maintain some kind of autonomy in its foreign relations. Hmm. Well, so that's I mean that's fascinating, and that's a good that is the good transition, I suppose, to some of these other ways that Turkey sought to improve relations with its with its neighbors. So, in the case of Syria and Iraq, perhaps we can think about this. Uh, you t- you talk, for example, about railroad networks as one of the major ways that the uh, Republican government in Turkey sought to improve its ties with some of those neighbors, Syria, Iraq, Iran. And I'm hoping maybe you can talk us through this a little bit, the policy, how it manifested. Right. So uh, Turkey found itself in a very difficult economic situation uh, at the early stages of the Republic, the long wars in Anatolia, the First World War, and then the war over Anatolia, the population exchange, the depopulation of much of Anatolia left it in in a very difficult economic situation. So it looked for ways, the government in Ankara looked for ways to improve its economic situation. And one of the ways that was perceived to have a great potential was to turn Turkey into a transit hub for trade between the Middle East and perhaps beyond it, India and areas further beyond that, uh, and Europe. And in order to do that, you needed to uh, establish uh, railway, railways that will connect the Persian Gulf and Iran, uh, so, so Iraq uh, and Iran, through Turkey to Europe. Uh, so there was there a vision of uh, this development of Turkey as an international hub uh, of, of, of trade using its uh, geographical position as a bridge between Asia and uh, Asia and Europe, specifically uh, during a period in which the relations between the Soviet Union to the north was not great with, with, with much of Europe, 
so they hoped to, to, to do this thing. And they worked really hard in the 30s to convince both Iraq and Iran to establish uh, railway connections with Turkey. They were not fully successful uh, in it, but they were still insistent, so insistent that they actually began building their sides of the railroad through really rugged terrain in eastern Anatolia mm. towards the Iraqi border and towards the Iranian border in the hope that they will be able to connect with these lands. With Syria, uh, this was interesting because uh, the most convenient connection between, in terms of the terrain between Turkey and Iraq would have been through northern Syria. And this was actually the kind of the vision of the uh, Baghdad railway that began already in Ottoman time. However, it passed through Syrian territory and uh, the Turks uh, rightly suspected that, that trade that will pass through Syria the French authorities there and, and in the future probably an independent government in Syria, if there will be uh, one, will try to divert it towards Beirut or other port cities along the Mediterranean, which they did not want, because in this case it won't pass through Turkey. So this partly informed uh, some Turkish um, aspirations to get control over at least parts of northern Syria, the Jazeera region and perhaps other regions in northern Syria, and also informed tensions between Syria and uh, Turkey because there was always concern, uh, not unfounded, that if this, the opportunity presented itself, Turkey might uh, move to occupy parts of northern Syria, partly in order to make it easier to establish communication lines with, with uh, Iraq. But as long as this did not happen, Turkey worked on, on a different project of direct through, as I said, a, a less hospitable terrain, a direct uh, railway connection with, with Iraq. So it was always seen as both economic uh, and strategic. Another way you talk about in your book of Turkey trying to link itself to some, uh, some of these countries, I suppose particularly Egypt in the case of your book, is not just rail lines, but also um, uh, boat, boat lines, right? Cruise lines, that type of thing as well. Uh, is there, could you talk to this a bit, perhaps? Sure. So Egypt was uh, the largest economy in the Middle East during this period. So it was mm. the richest country, the largest economy. Uh, and beyond that, there were significant populations in Egypt that had historical connections to Anatolia, to, uh, to, to Turkey. Uh, some, many of them still speaking Turkish at home. Uh, and, and these uh, people oftentimes would come during the, uh, the very hot summer uh, month in, in Egypt, would vacation in Istanbul or uh, other parts in Western uh, Anatolia or around uh, in, in Izmir or, or uh, around the Bosphorus. So uh, this had uh, an economic importance uh, to it. 
It had, there were these social ties and Turkey wanted to capitalize on them. Now, the connections to Egypt uh, throughout the 1920s was maintained mainly by uh, foreign uh, steamship companies, uh, the most important of which was an Egyptian steamship, steamship company that maintained a line between Istanbul and, uh, and Alexandria. And when it canceled that line in 1930, uh, Turkey jumped to establish its own line, uh, kind of emphasizing the importance of this connection uh, because uh, Turkey at the time was a relatively poor country with not too many steamship boats. Uh, and those that it did have were really needed for, uh, for, for uh, connections between ports uh, in, uh, around the Black Sea and around the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. But still, mm. uh, it, it appeared uh, as promising enough, the, the, the establishment of a line between Istanbul to Alexandria, both for Turkish exports, uh, primarily of agricultural products, but also for uh, the movement of people, specifically movement of Egyptian tourists to, to Turkey, uh, that Turkey went ahead and established this line. And the reality was that it turned out to be not a profitable line. Uh, mm. So there were, from the beginning, some pressures in Turkey, especially in Ankara, which is far from the sea, <laughs> uh, to look at the bottom line and say, well, this line is not profitable, let's cancel it. But when they tried to do it, there was always a pushback from other interests in Istanbul, in Izmir, in, in the region of Western Anatolia that basically argued that uh, the economic potential is important enough to maintain this line in, 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 in the hope that uh, it will become profitable. And also that the social ties were important between uh, Anatolia-linked groups in Egypt and Turkey. And that uh, perhaps strategically, uh, it will lay the foundation to a Turkish claim for influence in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, so there were always a pushback. And at one point when the uh, line was indeed canceled in 1933, one of the newspapers, Cumhuriyet, which was the, uh, the largest newspaper in Turkey at the time, uh, opened such a campaign, a public campaign against it, that the government, and we're talking about a, a single party authoritarian government, actually went back on the decision and restored mm -hmm. the line. Only uh, two years later, eventually the losses were significant enough that it was suspended again indefinitely. So I mean, we have these transportation links that you write about. And perhaps the last uh, point of connection we might talk about is, uh, I guess, cultural links is a good way of putting it. In one of your chapters, you talk about uh, Kariman Hollis, this uh, famous Turkish uh, beauty pageant uh, winner who is sent around, sent to Egypt as sort of a cultural ambassador, if you will. But it's a, it's a fascinating uh, anecdote you provide. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this a little bit more, too, as one of these points of uh, cultural connection, but also some tension that arises from it as well. Sure. 
So, so Keriman Halis uh, won a beauty pageant in Belgium in late 1932, which was billed as a Miss Universe uh, beauty pageant. So she was Miss Universe and hailed as Miss Universe uh, in Turkey, uh, seen as representing the success of the uh, Kemalist revolution in terms of uh, the liberation of women, or at least emancipation uh, uh, of women. It was not fully in 1932, but it was moving in this direction. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, very a, a very famous episode uh, of, of uh, the early uh, history uh, of the Turkish Republic. But as far as I know, uh, nobody ever looked at uh, a period of three months that she spent in Egypt in early 1933. Uh, she didn't mean to stay there for three months. She actually meant to stay there for only two weeks for a short visit, but uh, her reception was so sensational and, and the Egyptians were so happy to host her that eventually she stayed there for three months. Now, the timing is really interesting because she arrived in Egypt shortly after the Tarbush affair was kind of papered over. Uh, only a few weeks after, uh, and, and with the uh, the wounds still kind of open. Uh, so still tensions existing between Egypt and Turkey around this issue. And when she came, she was seen as someone who will, will show uh, the beautiful face of Turkey uh, to the Egyptian mm. people. Uh, to show how Turkey is moving forward as a progressive state uh, that allows more opportunities for women. And it might sound odd to us, but at the time, uh, the participation in the beauty pageant uh, was seen as a feminist uh, step, as a step forward in, in, in uh, the emancipation of women. So she was uh, seen as someone that will be able to, uh, to, to, to serve as an ambassador of goodwill on behalf of Turkey. And when she came to Egypt, uh, the reception was very enthusiastic. Initially, uh, not only from the public at large, mainly males, uh, and we have uh, reports of hundreds of men clogging uh, the docks when she arrives in Egypt or the railway station mm. in Cairo when she arrives from Alexandria. Not only from them, though, but also from the Egyptian feminist union that saw her as, uh, as, as perhaps something that a symbol that could help them in their um, struggle for the emancipation of women in Egypt. So it, it begins uh, very enthusiastically. It ends on a more controversial note because there are all kinds of reports that she might be uh, gaining some economic benefit, uh, benefits for, uh, for her appearances, or that uh, she and her father might have associated with uh, people who are not supportive of Mustafa Kemal and uh, the Turkish Republic, this type, type of thing. But on the whole, uh, this 
represented really an effort of, of Turkey uh, to uh, burnish its image, uh, in this case in Egypt, but, but really uh, in the Middle East more generally, because we have other examples of Turkey trying to, uh, to create a positive image for itself among the Arabic-speaking speaker uh, publics in the Middle East. Now, we've, we've talked about crises and points of uh, connection during this period, all of which speak to your overall argument that during the interwar years, the Turkish Republic wasn't actively engaged in relations with Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Iran, much more than is commonly talked about. That said, from World War II to about, I guess, 1958, we can say, is a, a real period of transition. Um, so perhaps the final thing we can talk about is what are some of the developments during this last period that does push Turkey away from connection with some of these other states? Yes, indeed. The Second World War and its aftermath create major changes in Turkey's geopolitical situation in general and vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East in particular. And there are also important changes in, in Turkey itself and in the Middle East that create significant changes. So one of the most important things uh, had to do with, with a factor that I'm talking about in the book, but we didn't have the opportunity to talk about so much now. Uh, and, and this has to do with the relationship between Turkey and the Soviet Union. Uh, hmm. During the interwar period, uh, at least until the mid-1930s, there were very good relations between Mos Moscow and Ankara. And in the late 30s, there were at least workable relations between, between them. The relations are uh, really destroyed during World War II and are remaining very tense throughout uh, much of the Cold War, definitely late 40s and into the 50s. So uh, from a situation in which Turkey feels confident with, with the Soviets uh, in their back, now they are kind of, they're feeling much less confident. This mm. creates... Uh, an increasing Turkish reliance on the Western alliance uh, at a time in which uh, internally, after the interwar period, there was a single party rule. Uh, uh, this creates a situation in which they're both uh, uh, relying on the Western alliance and internally there are all kinds of political upheavals in Turkey itself. Uh, now, in the Middle East, uh, we see the rising tide of pan-Arabism and anti-imperialism directed primarily at Turkey's now allies, Britain, and eventually the United States too. So in the context of the Cold War, uh, Turkey transitioned from a country that in the 1930s, in the interwar period, uh, felt uh, confident with its relations with the Soviet Union and was seen as a proudly independent uh, power, really an anti-imperialist power. It transitioned from this during, uh, in a period of uh, a multipolar world into a country uh, within the context of a bipolar world that appeared to be doing the bidding of others, a weak country that is appearing to be doing the bidding of others, uh, the Western, allies that were increasingly resented in the Middle East. 
So we see Turkey in the late 40s trying to a degree to reach out to the more conservative countries uh, in the Middle East, like Transjordan, still uh, a monarchic uh, Iraq, but not too much. More so uh, in the early 1950s, once there is a change of government in Turkey and after Turkey joins NATO in 1952, then there is a greater push uh, for influence in the Middle East. But again, now it's not like in the interwar period when it appeared like, uh, as I said, proudly uh, independent country, but now it is connected with the Western alliance. So there is a lot of resentment against this. And the high point, what appears to be the high point of its influence is the Baghdad Pact in 1955. Uh, During this period, again, they develop all kinds of plans to transform Turkey into a transit hub for oil and trade uh, between Iraq and Iran and Europe. Uh, but then it all comes crashing down in 1957, 1958. 1957, Turkey uh, developed plans to intervene in Syria, but basically uh, they're checked back by the American unwillingness to support them and, and by Russian or Soviet threats. And then 1958, the unification between Egypt and Syria, and then the bloody coup d'etat in, uh, in Iraq. And it is at this point, uh, with this international development, at the same time that there are increasing upheavals inside Turkey that will lead to a military coup in 1960, that Turkey turns its back on the Middle East and adopts a a much more passive uh, policy, a policy that is focused on, uh, on more defensive uh, goals and some economic interests rather than active involvement. And it's exactly during this period that the historiography of uh, the, the foundation for the historiog- historiography of modern Turkey is, is, is kind of uh, produced. And uh, many of the developments of this period are projected back to the mm-hmm. interwar period anachronistically. Well, that, that, is, that is fascinating. Um- I guess we, we should wrap up, but as we're finishing up, I'm just curious to ask, do you have a new project you're working on in this sort of in the same vein as these past books or uh, where are you going? Yes, my new project is, is actually building on some of the things that uh, I've done in this book, uh, but it is focusing specifically on the period of World War II. Uh, Hmm. The, the period in which really uh, there was this this shift, uh, geopolitical shift, and 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 many other changes uh, in in Turkey's relations with the Middle East and and in its posi- position more generally. Uh, currently, tentatively, it's called World War II: Turkey and the Fate of the Middle East, and this is an effort hmm. not only. Uh, not only to engage in kind of traditional diplomatic history, but to add to this uh, the uh, the reflection of the situation of women in Turkey 
during this period and how the war, the war situation influences it and reflects it. Uh, uh, public diplomacy during this period, cultural exchanges. Uh, so so it's, it's kind of like what I tried to do here, something that is beyond your traditional diplomatic history of, you know, statesmen talking to each other, mainly men talking to each other and, and you know, uh, exchanging views. So, so to expand it to something uh, bigger than that in a period of significant change that will uh, influence Turkey and the Middle East for decades to come after the Second World War. Well, that's a very exciting book. I, I, I look forward to it. That said, this book we talked about today, Kamala's Turkey in the Middle East, is also a very wonderful book. And we only talked about a limited amount of what's in it. So I hope people listening will take time to read it in the coming year because it really is a wonderful book. And I, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about it with us today. Thank you. I had, I, I had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you.